John chapter 4. Are you there? Take a look. Now, if you have what's called a red-letter edition Bible, and that means that all the words of Jesus are printed in red, and uh, kind of all the words of others or the actions are printed in black letters. If you have that or someone right next to you has that, I want for you to take a look. Look at the kind of latter half of John and into the first half of chapter 5. What's the main color of letter printed? What is it? It's... it's uh, no, it's black for those, isn't it? I mean, the main, you know what? This was going to start out real well. <laughs> I'm already having to reel this back in. I don't know about you, but my Bible, the most of the letters in the fir- at the end of John, John chapter 4, in the first half of John chapter 5, most of the letters are black, aren't they? Okay, now look at the second half of John chapter 5. And what color letter is there? Red. Red. Okay, good class. We're there. Hey, why am I bringing this up? Because right there, all as confusing as that was, ended up being, um, right there we kind of see what's happening here. We are going to see some activity. And yes, Jesus is saying some things in, those, in the end of chapter 4 and also in the first half of chapter 5. But most of it is action, activity that's taking place. And it all leads up to a whole bunch of red letters. Okay? In other words, we're going to be looking at two stories that really lead into the story. Okay? So just keep that in mind here as we go along. We've got a lot of text to cover, so let's get at it. Lord God, I just pray as we now dig into your word that you would have our attention. And I pray that the power of the word of God would be used by the spirit of God amongst us here this morning for your glory in the beautiful, wonderful, awesome name of Christ that we've just sang about. Amen. John chapter four, let's pick up in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Right before this uh, had been taking place, he's, he's heading now down. He was uh, uh, with the Samaritans. He had been in Jerusalem. He's making his way. He was with the Samaritans for a while. And after two days, he departed for Galilee, verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, I want for you to notice the parenthetic statement in verse 44. This is really central and important to grasp this parenthetic statement here for where we're going here this morning. Verse 44, that parenthetic statement is tied to grammatically, is tied to verse 45. Remember, Jesus had just been with the Samaritans uh, in verse 42. Before this, we can see how the Samaritans responded to Christ. And many of them were saying, indeed, he is the savior of the world. What an incredible response. And yet Jesus is now entering back north, going back to kind of his hometown area, if you will, with his own people. And the reality is, is that his own people had shown a minimal honor. They'd shown minimal response to him. There really was no breadth of this is the Savior. And in some ways, I can understand that. A guy coming from your hometown being that way. Uh, But instead, they're seeing Jesus with shallowness. They're seeing Jesus as kind of this uh, magic, uh, be my magic elixir miracle worker man. Uh, What's kind of going on here? And uh, solve my life crisis problems. And yet Jesus knows all men. We talked about that. Jesus knows all men. Jesus knows all women and exactly what's going on. This statement here in verse 44 is really important for where we're going from here. So let's pick up verse 46. So 
he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water to wine. Remember that? Chapter 2. Okay, where he made the water to wine. And at Capernaum, which is right over by the Sea of Galilee, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come up or to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Now, understand this. If you know the Bible, if you know the story of Christ, you may be thinking that this is the similar story to what's called the the centurion who comes. This is not. I think this is a different story. The centurion comes to heal his servant, and yet so there's some settings that are same, but this is a different situation. This is not the story of Matthew chapter 8. This is not the story of Luke chapter 9. This is a unique story. We see in verse 47 that this is an understandable crisis. Listen, a father's son is dying, and there's no ready-med. There's no hospital. Okay, we sometimes just lose track of what context of world we are in. They didn't have that at that point in time. And his son is on the verge of dying. And they hear about this one, this Jesus, that Jesus could heal. So, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, I've been kind of jokingly going through. It's like Jesus is always talking at a different level. I mean, he's coming saying, in essence, we don't see exactly what he says. We don't even know at this point if he says anything, but uh, Jesus knows all heart. He knows what's going on. And he's talking at this. Listen, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Again, here we go again, right over the top of the heads, okay, with what's taking place here. But understand this and what Jesus is saying. This is very key. Jesus is actually giving a rebuke. And this is not a rebuke just to this guy. Why do I say that? Because the you is plural. It's not singular. He's not saying, sir, whose son is about to die and who's come and had me. Listen, unless you believe, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, although that is true, because, but he's speaking to the whole. He's in essence, this is a you all. Uh, he is speaking at a different level once again in what's happening here. And so when it says that the Galileans welcomed him, um, I got to tell you, I think this is really more they welcomed him as the magic elixir voodoo man. They see this guy with some power, and I think there's clearly some respect, and I want to be too hard, but I think that's the reality of what's going on. Well, Doug, you're being a bit harsh here, aren't you? No, look at this. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, look how he addresses him. The official said to him, sir. The official says to him, sir, come down before my child dies. I'm just going to tell you, folks, this is completely different response than Matthew 8 or Luke 7 with the centurion. And in fact, in that statement, before the miracle even takes place, the centurion in addressing Christ says, Lord, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And here it's sir. It's not Messiah. It's not even rabbi. It's not Christ. It's not Lord, but sir. I'm just going to tell you, it tells a lot on where this guy is coming from right at this point in time. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. By the way, how cool is that? 
you know, by the, can I just say this, this whole thing of if you just believe enough, if you have enough faith, Jesus will do it. I'm just going to tell you something. I don't think this guy had any faith in Christ at all, and yet Christ still healed the guy. Okay, let's just get off the televangelist, send in your faith seed stuff, and let's like get to the word. Uh, Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do, okay? Uh, a little bit of a I love y'all. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. That's cool. And went on his way. Because I got to tell you, that is pretty amazing. Uh, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said, by the way, understand, he's not walking down the hill at the bottom of the hill he meets. This is a walk, a, a good period of time. And they said, yesterday, that gives you an idea. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Bam. That's cool. And he himself believed, and all his household. Now, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come down from Judea to Galilee. Uh, that's cool. Uh, yet, I also want to say this, or ask this, believed what? It's interesting that the text does not tell us. And, and I want to use this just as a moment to say, what did he believe? Did he believe now that Jesus was a, pow- was a prophet? Was he was a miracle worker? What did he believe? We're going to be talking about this through more through the book of John as we see. I want everybody to turn over to Matthew chapter 7. I'll hang a left in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. I just want to bring a perspective into view here. Matthew chapter 7, we are at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking. In fact, it's right around the Sea of Galilee, right in the areas you can see where all this is taking place up on the screen on the map. And uh, Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount. He's near the end of his sermon, and he gets at verse 21. And listen to this. These, these words are incredibly scary. Verse 21, chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at this. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Turn back to John and go to chapter 2. I'm just going to tell you, friends, I don't know what this man's belief ended up being. Uh, while we're going through the story, I just want to bring it to the table and have us consider what belief is all about. Look at chapter 2. We've read this before. We've talked about this a number of times. Verse 23 of John. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many what? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but... Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. I I don't know what this man believed. I don't know what his household believed, but I do want to use it as an occasion to be very careful in the reality as we continue to work through the gospel of John. And I just want to say, well, what did he believe? Let Let me bring it this way. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? He's my spiritual man. He's my moral standards man. 
He's the world's example. He's my golden ticket man. He's my health, wealth, prosperity man. He's my solve my life crisis man. I just want to put it on the table. Consider it. Consider it. Second story. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there went, by the way, we don't know how far after this. I think the after this is there to grammatically connect it to the first story that was just told. I think the, re- the reason I'm bringing these two stories together is because of that statement. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know what the feast is, but the reason he's just saying the feast is so that the next statement, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's the reason. He, he went back. Oh, by the way, up, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like we would say down, but he's going up because of elevation. He's at the Sea of Galilee, and where he's going to Jerusalem is actually south. He's heading back south now, but he's going up elevation-wise. Verse 2. Now... There is in Jerusalem by the sheep, by the sheep gate, a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, understand on this. In fact, let's bring the next slide. You can see a a picture of this uh, that uh, I took here on a trip. (laughs) This is a remake. Okay. You can see right here up there that taller tower there off to the left half. That is the Holy of Holies. This is the temple wall that's right over here. This is what this is where we're at. This is the pool of Bethesda, okay? It's right next to it. It's just north of this, very close to the temple. I'm setting a gauge because of what's going to about to happen in a little bit. But we can see in the text here, it talks about five colonnades. It has one, two, three, four, rectangular around this pool of water. There's actually two pools of water. The fifth one cuts down the middle, and there's these two pools of water that are there. That's where this is taking place. Let's pick up verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, inside of each of these areas are that. Now, in your Bible, like uh, my Bible has, there is no verse 4. Verse 4 is a footnote. And there's a reason for that because some manuscripts don't have it. Some of the better manuscripts don't have it. So there's a question on whether that was kind of added in later or whether that was original. And I appreciate the fact that they note that. And in verse 4, as you can look down at your footnote, it talks about how, in essence, uh, it's telling that there was an angel of the Lord that would come down, periodically stir the waters, and the first person in, can you imagine that? And I will say, there's even some debate on this. Is this superstition, or is this a real deal? I'm not going to go there. That's not the point. But verse 7, as we'll get to, kind of fits with some of this idea. But we don't know the details, but we do know this that periodically something happened in this spot that caused people to bring the paralyzed and the invalids and and the sick who were there. And and that's the thing here to keep in mind. So let's not get distracted by the other stuff because this story is actually about what's about to come, the red letters, okay? So that's the setting. In these days, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse five, one man was there who had been an invalid for how many years? 38. 38 years, that's a lot of years. Would we all agree? Yep. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, why him? Why just him? When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus knows all men, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool 
by the way, sir, and that's a proper, uh, how does this guy know who he is? Can I just bring that back to the prior story? This guy was properly saying, sir. They don't know who this guy was, but the other guy was coming down to the man that they had heard about had a healing ability. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. That's what we were talking about. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. By the way, do you also notice there, this isn't like this send in your faith seed and then Jesus will heal. Okay. That is so cool. Get up, take up your bed and walk. Who can do that? Amazing. Verse nine, and at once, not like he, he, he kind of stumbled to it. Not like it's kind of like, you know, he was trying to figure out how to do it. This, this dude had been an invalid for 38 years and at once, bam, kind of a thing. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. By the way, note, get up, take up your bed and walk. Keep that in mind. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now we're getting to the story. That day was the Sabbath. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, praise Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. I can't sing it. Sorry, Nick. You know, they're falling down, worshiping the Lord because God healed this man. Is that what happened? Man, look at this, friends. Look at this. What a sad day. So the Jews said to the man, and I think in the term when it's talking about the Jews, it's really talking about the leadership, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Oh, my word. Uh, By the way, in that day, it was unlawful to break the Sabbath. Now, Old Testament, I'm just going to bring it real simple here because of time. Old Testament, the Sabbath, I think is talking about this idea of a rest from your, in our terms, from your employment. In essence, really, the Old Testament is saying, work six days, take a day off. What had ended up happening was over time, this had turned into, there was actually, it was not God who put it on the table, but man put on the table 39 different categories of work. And I think God was only talking about one. Listen, if you're a plumber, on the Sabbath day, you don't plumb. Okay? But here they had 39 categories. One of the 39 was you could not pick something up and move it to another location because that's work. Uh, So here they come at this guy and say, you broke one of the 39. Code 6, paragraph 3, statement 2. And it was in the day to where it was worse to be the person who told someone to do that work. So what's happening here? Follow this along. What's happening here is they come to him and they say, you are breaking the code. Follow what takes place. It is a Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your your bed. Verse 11. But he answered them, look. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I think this is blame shifting. I really do. 
I, I think this is a point where he's scared to death because right now he's in trouble. And he also knows in the culture of the day that he was told to do it. And that guy's going to take the fall for it. And it's really what would have happened. And so it was him. He doesn't even know his name. Can I just pause for a second on that? I mean, if you've been an invalid for 38 years, and I want to be careful with here, but there's a part of this where it's come up, like, dude, you're invalid for 38 years. This guy comes along, and, and yet I can understand you just, you get up and you're like, woohoo, yeah, and you're running. You want to tell your family. I can understand that. But there's also a component of this. It's like, don't you go and say thank you. And by the way, who are you? That's just interesting. Verse 12. So they ask him, and you can see why. So who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Got the idea? Okay, this is is who's probably, now now it's blames off of him. Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Look back up to the picture. You can see, oh, I'm sorry, let's actually go right back to the prayer one. You can see here from here, the temple's just right by. Now afterward, I don't know how long afterward is it. Was it an hour? Was it later in the day? Was it the next day? Was it a week later? We don't know. But we just know this. He found him in the temple. And can I say this? Cool. That's a great place for that guy to be. And again, I don't know what took place in his heart. God knows. But I'm just telling you, it's cool that he's in the temple area. That's, I'm encouraged by that. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, verse 14, and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I just quickly want to make this. Not all illnesses are the result of sin or demonic activity. Okay? But I also want to note this. Some can be. Some are. How do we know? Here's where I get nervous about all that. We act like we know. You can't tell. How do you and I know? So I'll tell you what this. How about this? We just like go to the Lord and like let him take care of that. And we try and be wise working through the situation and helping someone. We don't always know. This is a whole Job interaction with his buddies. But here's the, the fact is that some ailments can be direct consequence of sin. Only God knows, I think, ultimately what's taking place there. And I'll tell you this. I think, and I put it this way. I think what John, the author, is doing here as he's telling the story, moving to the red letters, he's very possibly telling the reader, telling us that the reason Jesus picked this guy out from everybody else was because very possibly his ailment was tied to a sin. Don't get all caught up in this. That's not the point of it. But yet he comes back and I think that's potentially why Jesus says, see, you are well, rejoice. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I'm just going to tell you, Jesus is not only the healer, but he is the redeemer. The bigger problem is sin, and Christ is willing to talk about that. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Cool. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They were honked off because this guy was breaking their rules. These people were not upset because this guy was breaking God's rules. Even though they had interpreted it that way. They had made it their rules. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, by the way, do you see how it is just up the ante? They didn't like him before chapter 5. From chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, it turns into let's kill the beast. That's where this is going now. This is, we've turned a corner. Everybody understand chapter 5 is a turn the corner. It's not only we don't know about this guy, we're concerned about this guy, we're watching this guy, but now it's time to kill this guy. Why is that? Well, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All of these two stories, I think, are coming to this point. This is what these stories are bringing about. Jesus was practicing as an authority over the Sabbath true. And Jesus was claiming himself to be deity true. Absolutely true. This just brings up another question back to my original. So who do you believe Jesus is? If you think that Jesus was a good moral man, setting an example for us, that can't be. That is not an option. But he said he was God. That's not a moral person. If he said he was God and he was not God, he's a liar. And a liar is not someone you want to follow as a moral example. Bag that one. Maybe he was just like kind of a spiritual guru kind of guy. No, that's not what he's talking about. He said he was God. Now, some people, you'll read some commentaries who are liberal about the the scriptures, will say, well, they just misunderstood him. Oh, no, they didn't. Because guess what? The red letters are coming. And the red letters are going to make this point so clear on who Jesus said that he was. Okay? There's no question. If you or you know of someone who thinks he's a nice guy or just a prophet or just a whatever, he's just like Muhammad, he's just like Confucius, he's just like uh, Shakyamana Buddha, he's just like all these other people. No. He said he was God, and that's why they were trying to now kill him. Okay, let's just be very clear about that. You can't play another game. You can't. It's just not intellectual, honest thinking to do so. Okay? Now, consider when the typical person, like you or I, if we had a kill the beast APB on us, we would run or hide or try and clear ourselves, right? But not Christ. He so steps up to the I am God plate here and crushes it over the fence. Kind of fitting in with what's going on in baseball right now. Okay? I mean, watch this. This is what's taking place. They want to kill him as a blasphemer. And so what does he do? He makes it even more clear. Here we go. The red letters. And here's what I'm going to do. Uh, Sometimes when us pastors or preachers get to these sections, we can kind of read and stop and cut it up and yet miss the whole flow of what's happening here. So here's what I'm going to do. All the red letters, I'm just going to read them. Because Jesus didn't go through and then give point one and then give point two. 
He said what he says here, so we're going to go through that together in that manner. Here we go. Got the picture? They're there at the temple grounds. By the way, isn't that cool? They're like on the holy spot. The Jewish leaders are there. They just, in essence, are wanting to kill him because he broke the Sabbath and because he's claimed to be God. And Jesus is right there for everyone to say, right on the temple grounds. What a cool spot to say what he's about to say. So here we go. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to resurrection. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have this word abiding in you. For you do not believe. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not love, have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only Father. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Uh, There is one who accuses you, Moses. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? I love getting behind the curtain on things. Uh, My years in business and manufacturing, I I love that cable TV show where it shows like how do they make or whatever. I uh, asked my wife, I love that. I, I, I love all that goes on behind the walls of a building that can get what we get on a store shelf. It's so intriguing to me. How do they produce that widget? And all of the technology that goes into producing all of that. I just love that stuff. This passage here is one of the most amazing behind the curtain opportunities that you and I have to be able to see the son and the father and how they work. It is impossible for me today to work through this whole text. And I'm not even going to try. I'm going to make two points about it here in just a minute because I'm going to give it a little bit of a shot. But I want to encourage you this week to spend some time in these red letter verses of John chapter 5. This is amazing stuff, folks. We actually get to get inside, if you will, the head of God the Father and God the Son. It's amazing. Let me bring out two points. Number one. The son does what the father does. The son does what the father does, and the son does what the father entrusts to him. We see this all throughout. You you can go and spend some time with it. In other words, what it's saying is that it is impossible for the son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over against the father. The son's action, Jesus' actions all coincide with the Father's and are extension of all that the Father does. In fact, you can look at verse 21. It says, the Father gives life, the Son gives life. What the Father does, the Son does. The Son also does what the Father entrusts him to do. You can see in verse 22, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. I just tell you, this is like teen trinity. And we're seeing two persons, the first person and the second person of the Trinity, and learning about this incredible interaction that's taking place. 
This is so important. You've got to understand, this is so important at this time for me to kind of highlight this text out for you as simple as I can. Because from here on out through the Gospel of John, you and I are going to see Jesus talking about, like none of the other three Gospels, you're going to see Jesus talking about interaction with the Father. And I do this to please the Father. And this the Father. And the Son and the Father. You're going to see the Son-Father thing going through the whole text. And it all starts right here. What the son does is what the father does, and what the son does is what the father is entrusted to the son to do. Look at verse 45. Just to clarify, you know, the whole Moses thing, Moses will accuse you. Here's what's going on. On the last day, it will not be Jesus who presses charges and prosecutes the Jews. Uh, Let me put it this way. Who prosecutes the ones who are there listening to this. It's going to be Moses. Isn't that interesting? The very one that they hold so dear, the very one that all of their laws, their Sabbath laws are coming out of, if you will, the, 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 the king for them, if you will, kind of in their mind, the priority prophet of them, he's going to be the one who's going to go, sorry, you missed it. You missed the whole thing. Moses is going to be the one who's accusing them, not Jesus. Very intriguing. Let me just ask a couple questions here with this first item. Followers of Christ, are we called to live like Christ? Let me ask that again. Are, are we, I'm going to give you a little time, a running start here, I understand. <laughs> are, are we called to live like Christ? Okay, so if Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, lived in submission to the Father, should not we? Help me here then. Would it be true that you and I struggle to do that? I want to do. I prefer. I deserve. I believe. So what? How about this? What does my Savior want? my savior prefer in this what does my savior deserve here's another what does my savior think about this right now if we're to be like christ we need to submit ourselves fully fully in fact look at verse 30 jesus i can do nothing on my own folks that's jesus the second person of the Trinity, how much more should that be your and my statement? The son does what the father does and he does what the father entrusts him. Secondly, love is the basis for it all. Love is the basis for what the father and the son do. Uh, Just please take this for this week and consider it. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. The first person of the Trinity loves the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity loves the first person of the Trinity. And can we just assume in this, because the discussion is about the father and the son, that the spirit fits right in that as well? 
They love each other. There's no God competition going on. There's no of the three who can become Zeus. That's not what's happening anywhere here. Jesus did what he did, first and foremost, out of love for the Father. This is so important as we continue in the Gospel of John. Because frankly, friends, I think sometimes we think ourselves a little bit too high. Jesus was doing all that he was doing for you and I. True. True. For God so loved the world that he gave. Oh, God the Father so loved the world that he gave us. Oh, well, anyway. I put it this way. Why was Jesus going to the cross? Because the Father, theologically, ontologically, what's the role of each of the Trinity? The Father asked the Son to go to the cross. And the Son's like, I love you. I will do that. Why is the son on the cross? Out of love for the father. Is it for you and I? Absolutely. In Gethsemane, God, father, I don't want to do this. But not my will, your will. I used to say in my testimony years ago, and I bagged this because of this. I used to say, I remember hearing someone tell when I was in high school saying that when Christ was in Gethsemane and he was about to go to the cross, he's like, I so don't want to do this. He thought of Doug Helmer. Yeah. Sort of. When I say when you look at the text, he's thinking about God the Father. And out of that, we reap the blessing. Hmm. The Father loves the Son, therefore he shows the Son what to do. The Son loves the Father, and the Son loves submitting to the Father to do whatever the Father wants, because he knows it's going to bring glory to the Father. And the Father knows that when he does that, it's going to be glory to the Son. Read through the text. Dig into it this week. And the Son's obedience to the Father reveals the Father. Hey, listen, you want to see the Father? Look at the Son. Okay, back to our question here. Are we supposed to, followers of Christ, are we supposed to live like Christ? Yeah. So that means also that if we're to do that, it's all out of love. Crud. I can't do that. Crud. I can't screw up my life. That's really what it's sin is. Uh, out of love for my Savior, absolutely. I'm in on that. If that's what you want me to do, I'll submit to that. It's kind of this whole thing of, I want to be loved. I want to be respected. That's okay. But this is the point. What about the Savior's love and the respect of the Savior? You know, I want attention. Well, what about the Savior's attention? I want to be cool and awesome. Well, what about the Savior getting the glory? I want to be appreciated. How about we honor our Savior? Look at Jesus, verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. And then right after that, he says, you and I, we really struggle with that, don't we? (laughs) We're amazing people, aren't we? Love the Father. Love the Son. Submit your life to him. And when we do that, by the way, it reveals the Savior. 
It glorifies the Savior. This is what it's all about. We have an example who's come for us. Let's pray. Lord, just in this wrap-up moment here, I would just kind of ask here that we would take some time to even consider this. Um, and, And friends, I would just ask you to consider this. What's something right now in your life, just one thing right now in your life that's going on that you've been doing it yourself? for your own glory, for your own love. Maybe there's something you need to stop doing. Maybe it's been an attitude, just an angry attitude or resentfulness or selfishness or criticalness. Or maybe it's language and just mouth or just what things that you've been saying, whether it's in person or whether it's online. Or maybe it's things you've been watching or hearing or spending money on or Maybe it's just taking all the attention and the glory of life and, and you know that's wrong and you need to start getting at it. Uh, can, I, can I just today, in light of what uh, seeing the Son, how He is all about, it's all about pleasing the Father, can I just encourage you, hey, drive the stake this morning. This week, let's get after that stop doing it thing. Or maybe it's something that you need to start doing. Maybe it's something in your life that you know that maybe it's seeking repentance of someone or of the Lord or there's a relationship with someone that needs to be brought together or maybe it's a relationship with Christ that has just been kind of, you know, I'll put you in when I can put you in. Maybe you need to just get into the Word or get really more serious about your study for a small group. I don't know what it is. Can I just say that I just don't want us to leave this kind of time here in watching our Savior. He's so right now putting himself to where he's not allowing them any question. They've got to take him to the cross. Because he's clarifying very clearly that he says he is God here right now. And he knows exactly what's going to happen. And he's willing to do it. He's willing to do it because he knows the Father would be pleased by that. just been struggling can I just say now's the time to buck up and to love the Lord and to get after that thing for his glory reveal him maybe you need some help someone to come alongside you to pray for you or just whatever but hey it's time to get after it God I thank you so much for the example of you in the flesh come down to live so that we can not only hear about what you've provided, but we can see how to live it. Thank you that you are God and not some guru. Thank you that you are the Savior and you bring salvation, not condemnation. Oh God, may we respond out of love to do what you would want us to do, to please you, to love you, and to love others. In the glorious name of Christ, we pray.